Hello and welcome to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Mike's off. He's traveling with the London Knights. Got a busy show for you today. We'll be talking about climate change and funding for health care in the first half hour of the program. Later this hour, we'll talk about Canada's current relationship with China and the impacts of that relationship nationally internationally and locally. Next hour, we'll talk about Brexit and we'll talk about the Junos, which are less than 60 days away, by the way. Up first today, I want to talk about climate change, but not in a way I normally do when it's a topic. Usually when I want to talk about the environment or climate change, it's because there's a new report or there's a new discovery that's been made and it's something we should all be aware of. Usually it's something bad, let's be honest. But I want to talk about today, there was something interesting out of the United States, Connecticut to be specific, where a legislative proposal would mandate instruction in climate change in public schools statewide, beginning in elementary school. Connecticut has already adopted science standards that call for teaching of climate change, but if the bill passes, it's believed it'll be the first to write such a requirement into law. The bill was proposed by State Representative Christine Palm. The Chester Democrat says it should be taught from a young age so there's no excuse for kids to grow up ignorant of what is at stake. Some educators have questioned whether it's necessary in light of Connecticut's adoption in 2015 of the Next Generation Science Standards, which include climate change as a core aspect of science education beginning in middle school, but this is going forward anyway. I hope they do this, and I hope this is the start of a trend in Canada and the United States. Now, in Canada, we do have climate change in school curriculums, but can we be doing more than what's currently on the table? To talk about this, we're joined by Dr. Daniel Scott. He's the executive director of the Interdisciplinary Centre on Climate Change at the University of Waterloo. Thanks for your time today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I don't think we talk enough about climate change in this country, even with all we know today. I mean, there's stories about, uh, you know, different uh, eventualities and what could happen and and what we need to be uh, thinking about and working towards. Um, But I don't know if we talk about climate change and just, you know, some of the basics sometimes. So when I saw the story out of uh, Connecticut, I thought it was a great idea. I'm glad they're doing it. And I I hope more uh, do something similar. Well, I, I fully agree. I think, you know, especially for, for young generations the, the, from the United Nations to our own government have recognized that early and sort of place-specific education is a key part of, of climate change action. And I look at, I've got two young daughters, and, and right now we're at the very early stages of climate change and its impacts, um, but it's that the next generations that are going to bear the brunt of it. And I think we, we owe it to them to educate them on what that means for them um, in the world that they're going to live in. Obviously, you know, in a school situation, you know, you kind of start at the basics. One of the problems generally, though, just talking about, you know, the environment and climate change is there's just so much to cover uh, that it's it's hard to nail it down. There's, you can go in any number of directions, but at least, you know, start with the basics here. Yeah, we've, Waterloo's, you know, University of Waterloo's been a, a leader in the climate change education space at the, at the sort of post-secondary level. We, we introduced the first Masters of Climate Change seven years ago, but we've also worked with our colleagues at the secondary schools and primary schools, and we, we've heard from teachers that as climate change was being built into the science curriculum, um, they were excited to see that happening. They thought that was really valuable, um, but they hadn't been taught about it themselves, so they they look to us to sort of help them with some of the training, some of the curriculum development. But then to your point, um, they've really struggled. Like, how do you squeeze that in when you've got to cover chemistry, physics, 
um, and other parts of the science curriculum at the same time. And that's something they still struggle with, um, finding the space. Um, and they've also said to us, you know, in a way, this is a whole of society challenge. Um, we want to see it in the civics classes, in the leadership classes, in math and in geography, not just in the science classes. And I think if we get to that point, then, you know, as you said, the conversations start, you know, happening in multiple um, parts of the curriculum, multiple classes, and, and that's when students begin to, to connect the dots on climate action. Do you think uh, we can get to a place where something like that happens, where climate change isn't just, you know, maybe a science class type of topic? Yeah, the, here in Ontario, for example, the eco-schools uh, group of, of schools across the province, they held a series of workshops and some discussions a couple of years ago about how to make that happen. Um, and and, and they, they fully agreed that they wanted to see it outside or more than just the science and sort of technology subjects. They wanted to build it into the civics and they wanted to get it, you know, in, as a sort of type of math problem and other things. So, but what they were lacking was the, the capacity to make that happen and that was within the eco schools i think outside of that cluster of schools climate change isn't nearly as covered as well as it is and it probably should be when we're looking at in, the, in this connecticut case looking at you know elementary school is there such a thing as starting too young with with this kind of a subject I, I don't think so. I've I've got a 12 year old. She's in grade six. Um, she's really interested in what in what I do, you know, as a career, and she's also begin begun to sort of connect the dots too. You know, she's interested in becoming an architect, and she's already connected the dot. Well, we'll have to build things differently. So even at that stage, they're able to get it. And so whether they're an engineer, future engineer, a future farmer, a future investment banker, climate change matters to their career paths as well as their personal life, from health um, to their career to their investment portfolio. So I don't think it's ever too young. You know, maybe grade five or six is a good starting point um, because they're already starting to get some of the science. And then so that's a great place to introduce it into the curriculum, I think. I can certainly appreciate, you know, why people might, you know, sometimes get confused when looking at climate change because there's so much information out there. And often yeah. the real information is presented in the same way as the, the fake information and where the people are trying to steer people away from it, duplicate what looks like real information. And so it's it can be difficult to tell what's what. That's that's one of the messages we heard from teachers themselves. Um, they said, you know, we, we were never trained on this ourselves in universities and other places because it didn't exist in the curriculum. So we're trying to sort through, you know, what science and what science fiction in the media as well. And, and so they're having a tough challenge. So any help and support we could give them, um, we offered that absolutely. Um, but to your point, you know, in some states, U.S. states, um, they've actually, you know, tried to in insist that teachers teach climate change denial, which is the equivalent of, you know, teaching them that the earth's flat and that sugar and smoking a pack a day is good for you. Um, so luckily we have none of that in Canada, um, but it's great to see um, what Connecticut is actually doing on a, on a positive side of, of, of teaching the next generation what they're going to have to deal with. Yeah, that was going to be my next point. I mean, it's very different in, in Canada versus the United States. As we've articulated already, you know, there, there, there's, there's a portion of the curriculum in Canada that already deals with this, but it's a little bit unique in the United States. And there's even, you know, I think Florida at one point didn't even mention the word climate change. And so it's, uh, uh, it, it's, it's a very different situation in some states in the United States. 
Yeah, I think the ones that I know of, it was Oklahoma and, and South Dakota that were insisting on teaching essentially what was climate change denial and misinforming a generation. I think in Canada, we, we have nothing like that, thankfully. Um, and, but I also think, you know, I think particularly with high school kids, um, they see in the news the, the debates we have about pipelines and a lot of these issues that relate to climate action. And the more we can teach them and engage them locally in those kind of discussions, why is this sort of discussion going on? Um, what is Quebec's position versus Alberta's? It, it helps them also understand Canada as a nation as well. And I think you know, climate change has a place beyond just that, that science curriculum in the, into these civics and these other debates that we're having across the country. They're future voters, so they need to know about these things. Have you seen a change in how people discuss climate change over the maybe the past, like, say, five years even? Um, in, in an education context, absolutely. Um, I think around the world people are realizing what we owe the next generation, how important education is, and, and how lacking it is. I think around the dinner tables and, and, and party atmospheres, there too, I think many people are much more engaged about trying to understand, again, what is science versus science fiction out there. And, and they want to understand some of these debates that we are having about pipelines and, and closing coal plants, um, you know, stopping the, the renewable uh, power um, and, and, and electric car subsidies that we had in this province. So people want to know why that's happening. What does that mean? Um, and I think they're, they're eager for more of that kind of information. If uh, someone were to ask you and, and for your thoughts on what would be a good way to start kids in elementary school uh, with uh, something on climate change, what would be a, the area you'd want kids to learn first? Well, I think, and, and kids really get that, um, you can start with even a concept of, say, the weather. You can look at, um, you know, we had a green Christmas um, here in Waterloo, um, probably in your area in London as well. Um, wh- how often does that happen? Has that changed? So I've one of the examples I give to my, my students is I show them the sort of climate my dad grew up in, the climate I grew up in, and how fundamentally different already the climate my young daughters are growing up in. And that's a good starting place. So you don't have to look forward, um, but you can show how the climate has changed. What does that mean for us here locally? And then you can get into some of the, what are the drivers of that? What does that mean going forward in the future? But I think if you start with that, those climate and weather stories, that's something kids can look outside and they can really understand, oh, that that shouldn't be that way normally or, you know, um, and understand those sorts of things, those local conditions. I almost wonder as, you know, students get older in, in high school, maybe instead of it just being a part of science class, there's just a whole class that's literally about climate change. Yeah, no, that's a great point, and that's that's exactly where the University of Waterloo went. We we looked at ten years. It's been more than almost fifteen years since I've taught a, a large undergrad. Uh, dedicated climate change course. Um, but even there, we realized, you know, maybe only 2% of our students coming out of our university were ever going to have the opportunity to take that class. So even there, we weren't doing enough. And that's where we, we started the, our Master of Climate Change program, which was a dedicated program. Um, and we, every year, our cohort's a little bit different, but we have in that class or in that program, everything from engineers to communications um, experts 
to geographers, to health people. Um, and so that's been a great program. Um, but we knew we, even there we weren't reaching enough people. So we put an online diploma on, on online so that people, and the course I taught last year had literally everybody from somebody from BC and from somebody from Halifax. So we had people from coast to coast. And the more opportunities we can give people that way, um, I think the, the better off we'll be with that dedicated climate change curriculum. I'll be interested to see if this catches on. I certainly appreciate your uh, time today. Thank you very much. Great. It was an excellent chat, and it's a really important issue. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Daniel Scott, Executive Director of the Interdisciplinary Centre on Climate Change at the University of Waterloo. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. I want to shift our attention from the environment over to health care. The Ontario Hospital Association has issued a warning to the province that cuts could be on the way to the health care sector at a time when they say the situation is dire. The OHA says ERs are bursting at the seams right now and overcapacity has led to hallway health care. To talk about this, we're joined by Anthony Dale, the president and CEO of the Ontario Hospital Association. Thanks for your time today. You're welcome, Devin. It is uh, it is budget season. Um, how concerned are you about uh, potential uh, cuts to uh, health care by the provincial government? Well, what we're most concerned about is the growing number of uh, patients in Ontario's hospitals who uh, really need care in other more appropriate settings. Um, and what that means is we have almost 5,000 patients who have finished their, their time in hospital and they can't... Uh, get access to services at home. They can't uh, get access to a place in a long-term care facility. And what that's doing increasingly is causing uh, very, very high levels of hospital occupancy. So Ontario hospitals right now all across the province, certainly in the London area uh, too, are facing uh, unprecedented uh, demand for for care because uh, because of that problem. What we're saying to the provincial government is that we know the solutions to this challenge lie primarily in building more long-term care capacity, in changing our home care system and building more uh, service capacity in in home care too. But until those services come online, until they're in place, and that will be a couple of years, Ontario hospitals really do need a bridge strategy to maintain uh, access to the services that they are providing uh, today and, of course, to make sure that there's minimal impact on, on the very, very uh, important people who work in hospitals, nurses, technicians, uh, uh, clerks, orderlies, anyone who is working in a hospital is devoted to uh, delivering patient care. So uh, hospitals right now are serving as a safety net for the rest of the healthcare system, uh, and the government has committed to ending hallway healthcare, and of course the OHA and its Colleagues right across healthcare are part of the, the solution, but again, we, we do recommend strongly a bridge strategy uh, until those changes are in place, and, and that uh, is why we've recommended an investment in hospitals in the budget uh, scheduled for uh, later this winter or, or spring. Do you think we all, and I'll include like, you know, the, the provincial government, uh, all politicians, the public in, in with this, the media as well, do you think we all appreciate just how difficult it's going to be to, to solve uh, hallway healthcare issues? Well, I think you're asking a great question because there are no silver bullets. There are no, no easy answers. The kinds of solutions that are needed really are 
uh, about changing the way we think about the healthcare system, and it means embracing and finding ways to ensure that technology is is adopted in a far more rapid and uh, broad basis than it is uh, today. So think about for a minute how care could be transformed if we use technology to monitor patients at home and prevent them from ever even having to come into a hospital in the first place. Imagine what we could do if we reduced red tape and uh, bureaucracy and allowed uh, hospitals and home care providers both uh, to work together to wrap services around uh, patients without without so much red tape. I mean, there are many powerful ideas that uh, can change healthcare, but they will take time. And uh, in, in the meantime, we do ask for the, the patience of the people of Ontario because hospitals are literally bursting at the seams, especially now during the flu season. And it, it, despite these challenges, Every single hospital in the province is committed to making sure that patients get access to services they need. It's just the demand is at times uh, overwhelming in some organizations. And again, we do ask for people's patience as, as the hardworking people in hospitals do their best to care for, for, for patients and their families. Some of the concerns you've expressed, do you think those are being heard by the province? We're very, very hopeful. Uh, the OHA, uh, we just delivered our pre-budget submission uh, earlier this week uh, at the legislature to a committee of government and opposition elected officials who are doing consultations as part of the budget process, and we got a lot of excellent questions that uh, very similar to your own about what are the kind of solutions that are needed. Obviously, the Premier Ford and his party made ending hallway health care the cornerstone promise of the election campaign when it came to health care. And, you know, it's a promise that was uh, in many ways long overdue, uh, given how rapidly these challenges have been growing in, in recent years. Uh, but again, it will take some time and it will take uh, very different new ideas uh, to solve it. But it is, uh, everyone in healthcare is excited at uh, the, the bold commitment that the Premier's made and we're all uh, committed to working with the government and the opposition parties to make it uh, a reality. If we were to take a glasses half full approach to uh, the budget, what would uh, be included in that budget for health care? I know you mentioned kind of a bridge uh, uh, situation mm-hmm. needed. So we're recommending an investment of 3.45% in hospitals uh, in the budget. And from our point of view, that's essentially the the the, the, the basic requirement in order to maintain existing service levels and uh, to, to minimize impact on, uh, on uh, the workforce. Um, there would still be challenges ahead. And, uh, you know, if hospitals don't receive that kind of investment, you know, I do want to reassure your listeners that they will do everything humanly possible to maintain uh, service levels. But as we've said through the week since we launched our uh, pre-budget submission, no one should be under any illusion either that there wouldn't be very, very difficult choices ahead. We'd also like to see the government in the next budget invest heavily in home care and make policy changes that would allow for a revolution in the way home care is administered in this province. I think evidence is piling up that the way it's not the home care providers themselves that uh, are uh, not working very, very hard. It's just the administrative system behind it is no longer able to keep up with, with the needs of patients and clients. So we'd like to see some powerful changes there. And, of course, we'd also like to see uh, further commitments to the construction of new long-term care beds 
We'd also like to make sure that the government's election commitment around mental health and addictions uh, carries on. It's a powerful multi-year, multi-billion dollar investment for some very, very vulnerable patients who haven't traditionally had access to the kind of services that they should. And so these are all the kinds of things that we'd like to see in the upcoming budget. If we were to take a glasses half empty approach, what are some of the ramifications if it's either maintained or maybe even cut? Well, I go back to the point I said a moment ago. Uh, If we're talking about the OHA's budget recommendations, you know, hospitals, they exist to deliver care for people. So that commitment will never change. And hospitals will bend over backwards to continue to do everything uh, they can to make sure that people have access to to services, even with the the data and evidence showing that we have 5,000 patients in in hospital beds today. Of the 30,000 beds, one in in six are occupied by people who shouldn't be there. We'll continue to work under those conditions. We'll continue to work under uh, the overcrowding and and, uh, longer emergency department wait times. But it would, the consequences would differ hospital by hospital depending on kind of local circumstances. But uh, as I tried to reiterate, no one should be under any illusion that trade-off decisions wouldn't be necessary. Anthony, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Devin. Bye for now. That's Anthony Dale, the president and CEO of the Ontario Hospital Association. We need to pause when we return more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. Mike's away with the London Knights. Relations between Canada and China continue to worsen. They have been troubled since Canada arrested telecom executive Meng Wanzhou at the request of the United States. Diplomatic relations have grown increasingly strained since Canada had uh, two Canadians detained by China following the arrest. And we just recently had a third sentence to death earlier this week after the Chinese retried him on drug smuggling charges. Now, China's going after Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland, saying she may have spoken without thinking. Basically, they're insulting her based on comments that... Canada has made and that uh, Freeland has made. Canada has embarked on a campaign with allies to win the release of ex-diplomat Michael Korvig and entrepreneur Michael Spavor, who were detained 10 days after Meng's arrest. They were arrested on vague allegations of engaging activities that endanger the national security of China. Is there a way out of these relations these tough relations between Canada and China. To talk about this, we're joined by Jia Wang, the Deputy Director of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. Thanks for your time today. It's my pleasure. The uh, The situation with China has really escalated since uh, this all began December 1st. Uh, China certainly doesn't seem like it's uh, going to be backing down against Canada anytime soon. It feels as though uh, they feel they can uh, push Canada around a little bit. Well, it, it seems to be um, um, more and more like the way you just described um, as the tension um, um, between the two countries has escalated uh, things, the arrest, um, well, det- detain, uh, detention of uh, Huawei chief executive, uh, chief financial officer in December, early December, and, uh, and China warned that some um, Severe consequences may come out of it, and 
and the few uh, actions China took afterwards, it seems to you know definitely point to that direction. Um, and the two sides are uh, essentially sort of caught in this um, back and forth and almost like a, um, uh, endless escalation of uh, the situation right now. It seems as though they're more concerned about uh, getting the release of the executive uh, from uh, from custody in Canada than they are than how this might appear on the world stage. Well, um, I think it might have been um, a surprise to uh, to many people that uh, China has responded so strongly um, uh, when it comes to this um, Huawei. Uh, arrest, um, and maybe more than a lot of people would think um, a country would do to a, um, a top executive. Uh, but China does see this country, uh, this company, Huawei, as sort of one of the crown jewel uh, of a company uh, for China. It's almost like, say, Apple for, for the U.S., uh, but might be even more. It, there seems to be a, some sort of um, a national pride associated with uh, with uh, supporting this company, and um, and then also Miss um, Meng happened to be the daughter of the founder uh, founder of the company, so that adds another layer of complication. And um, uh, but nonetheless, the uh, response from China is indeed very very strong. It's probably not. It shouldn't be a surprise for people who maybe have followed uh, China's responses in the past. Do you think they're worried about? How this looks or responding strongly is part of what they are concerned about? Well, maybe um, in China's uh, um, calculation of how this issue would be resolved, um, uh, again, you know, we don't have any direct evidence, uh, but uh, just seeing the actions um, uh, from China, uh, perhaps China is thinking by putting pressure and some immediate pressure uh, on Canada, things will get resolved fairly quickly uh, before Ms. Meng is uh, getting extradited to the U.S. because after she was arrested first in Canada, uh, the U.S., uh, according to the extradition treaty, the two countries um, uh, between Canada and the U.S., the U.S. essentially has 60 days to file a formal request for the extradition of Ms. Meng. Um, so perhaps in China's mind, you know, there's that ticking clock. So uh, this issue got to be resolved um, while Meng is still in Canada, and it got to be resolved um, within that 60-day time frame. So um, again, it's speculation, but China might be thinking, okay, we'll put pressure on and then see maybe um, Canada will cave and then this all will be resolved. How do you think this will resolve? Well, Canada's in a really um, tough place right now um, because it's really more in front of the court than anything. It's uh, more in front of the Canadian justice system. So um, from the time Ms. Meng was arrested, uh, I think there's still about roughly two weeks' time uh, for the U.S. to um, file that uh, request uh, to extradite. We don't know if uh, the U.S. government ha- uh, have, um, uh, has already done so. And um, if, say, the U.S. choose not to do so, then um, essentially 
Ms. Meng will be released, and uh, and hopefully a lot of this um, chaos will be resolved. But if uh, the U.S. decides to file that request, uh, then it will be in front of a Canadian judge, and the judge will have to decide on the merit of the case whether uh, this person should be extradited to the U.S. Uh, even when uh, the Canadian uh, judge judicial system decided that uh, Ms. Meng will be extradited, um, this pers- uh, person can still fight that order, <laughs> which could take uh, weeks, months. Um, so, um, but unfortunately, there's not a lot Canada can do at this point. Um, and it's, it's, it becomes part of the um, uh, legal system and, and will have to go through the proper process. So, um, so, yeah, uh, Canada's in a peculiar situation that uh, there's not that Canada can can take up on and to resolve. But it's really, a lot of it is a, it's a matter between China and the U.S., um, but Canada, unfortunately, is caught in the middle. How do you think Canada has handled things since this all started back in December? Well, um, I mean, Canada is doing what it can to, uh, of course, um, um, protect Canada's national interest. And also when uh, Canada detained uh, first two uh, Canadians, uh, two Michaels, uh, Canada's trying to um, do whatever through the diplomatic channels to urge China uh, perhaps to reconsider. And, and more, more recently, there is um, uh, a Canadian convicted uh, of uh, drug smuggling in China now um, being sentenced to, uh, to death in China. And so things just seem to be escalating. And, um, and now Canada is um, rallying support from uh, its traditional allies to perhaps um, put some pressure on China. But it seems that China is not really caving to that pressure. So um, I, um, I think ca- the Canadian side is trying to do uh, what um, uh, Canada can to help uh, resolve the issue. Um, but I sense the two sides, uh, there, there are some um, increasing uh, tension and also maybe um, the rhetoric is, uh, is getting more heated, uh, the back and forth, uh, which may not help um, in eventually resolving this issue. Um, so the two sides, I, I, I would hope that um, the two sides will take a calmer approach and, and, and still you open up that communication channels directly um, rather than perhaps just uh, making loud statements um, uh, in the media and then um, I, I'm just not sure if that's going to help solve this uh, problem right now. We will follow this with interest. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's Jia Wang, Deputy Director of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. We need to pause when we return more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL.
Welcome back to the program. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs today. Mike's away with the London Knights. I want to continue our focus on relations between Canada and China, but look at things from a more local perspective. Jerry McCartney is the CEO and General Manager of the London Chamber of Commerce. You may remember that London has done some outreach to Chinese businesses in recent years. Could the escalation in tensions impact us locally? Jerry is on with us now to talk about that. Thanks for your time today. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Uh, Some Londoners may forget, but we've uh, done a lot of outreach in this uh, city with uh, China recently on the business front. Uh, Is there a concern on your behalf about the impact that uh, current relations between uh, Canada and China could have on business in London? Yeah, there's a potential for some uh, certainly negative impacts. I don't know that they're devastating at this point, but they're they're negative. Uh, And we are concerned. There's uh, a number of different sectors that are doing business in that space and and, uh, others who are attempting to uh, get a foothold into that Asian market, and particularly in China, given that it's the second largest economy in the world. It's a huge opportunity. Uh, These relations or these political relations that we're experiencing uh, aren't doing us any favors in that regard. And there's concern that others who are actually in uh, China doing business already uh, could be hampered from uh, from that possibility going forward. Uh, Do we know if there have been any negative impacts locally already, or is it too soon to tell? I think it's too soon, but there's certainly uh, a lot of red flags up and alerts uh, that both countries are, are posting. Uh, so there's there's concern that people traveling there, normally doing business, might be compromised. We've got, uh, I know that we have some uh, medical device firms in, in our area that do business in China that are uh, are concerned. If not uh, already, they will be in the future if this continues to escalate. Uh, there are digital firms in the city, uh, gaming in particular, that uh, have Chinese ownership or partial ownership that uh, are concerned. Uh, Diamond Aircraft, of course, is another that uh, is partially owned or or fully owned by a Chinese firm, I believe. Uh, They'll be concerned. And and every one of our post-secondary institutions in London uh, recruit heavily in the Chinese market to bring Chinese students over here, namely because they represent a huge revenue stream for them. Each, uh, I'm told that each Asian student that uh, that comes over here for their education represents about a $45,000 per year direct input into our economy. And there are literally thousands of them. If you add up uh, Fanshawe, Western, King's College, and, and all the rest, uh, that's a lot of potential revenue that could go elsewhere if we're not careful. It's a tough situation because, I mean, there's there's the government, you know, the Chinese government, and then uh, Chinese business and the economy, which is slightly different. And as you mentioned, it's a major economy. It's it's not one we can anno- ignore. No, we can't. Um, we're certainly working towards uh, trade deals either separately with China and or uh, perhaps through the back door with uh, TPP or the new, the new name for TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, that whole Asian market and that Pacific Rim is, is a huge opportunity for Canada, and we need to be mindful of that as we consider the uh, the diplomacy involved with China or lack thereof. Uh, you have been to China in the past with some of our delegations, right? Yeah, we've had two delegations from the Chamber go over uh, back in 2012-13, uh, and we established several uh, memorandums of understanding with three cities, uh, one province, and a number of different uh, chamber-like organizations. Um, unfortunately, as we've all heard with uh, with 
Chinese business. It takes a long time to nurture that relationship before there's any uh, any real business transaction. And we attempted to do that for a number of years. The problem is is distance and time. Uh, the same players that we were working with are no longer there. Some of our players are no longer there, and it, it's difficult to maintain those contacts over a long period of time. But, but if you're serious about uh, doing business in China, that's an understanding you go in with that it's going to take a long time, and uh, they have to trust you for a long time before they will do business with you. It certainly hasn't been uh, the greatest uh, time recently. You know, I can't remember in recent memory for London when foreign. I guess governments, foreign relations have impacted the London market the way are the way they are right now. You know, Saudi Arabia, China. It's it's been a bit unusual, to say the least. And uh, not only for London, but for Canada. I can't remember, as you point out, I can't remember a time when. Uh, I felt uh, as isolated as we are. Uh, we haven't done well in China, as you know, and this current situation is not improving things. We haven't done well in India. We, we're uh, struggling with a, a trade relationship with the U.S. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. It's, uh, it's a time when we're feeling a little bit isolated, and, and the friends and allies that we once had uh, in terms of trade with Canada, a very trusted trading partner, uh, all those relationships seem strained at the moment. Yeah, I guess I should have added the United States to that list, even though we have uh, the new NAFTA deal and uh, things have been somewhat quiet between uh, the Trudeau uh, government and the Trump government. Uh, the United States is still that we still have those uh, the steel and aluminum uh, tariffs underway, and uh, that's not doing any deal, any uh, any benefits to us. So the United States uh, uh, situation isn't the greatest either. No, when you say we have a deal, we we think we have a deal. Uh, the USMCA uh, has yet to be ratified, and uh, as we you know witness what's going on between uh, the Democrats and the Republicans in the states right now, there's no assurance that that deal is going to get signed. It would there's indications that the Democrats do not want Trump to have that deal because it would give him a victory, and of course they don't want him to have that. So we're not certain whether that deal is actually going to go through, uh, and and we need to be prepared for that. What do we do in these times where it's a bit uneasy and we might feel a little bit alone in, on the world stage? Well, you can look, uh, you know, try and capitalize on our domestic market as much as you can, but certainly we need to look at other trading partners around the world to uh, buffer these times and make sure that we have other business to be conducted with other countries. Fortunately, uh, Canada is in a position where we have uh, existing trade deals with 52 different countries, and that's good. Um, not large in some cases, but deals nonetheless. Uh, we need to be taking advantage of CETA, although there's a great deal of nervousness and uncertainty with what's going on in Europe right now with the Brexit, uh, Brexit vote yesterday and what's going on in the United Kingdom. So there's no certainty, it seems, anywhere. The globe is unsettled. Uh, economies are unsettled at the time, and I'm sure that our manufacturers and export uh, folks are equally nervous. Uh, but I think it's time that, that our, our country recognizes that we're we belong to a global community. I know that sounds cliched, and we have to respect and understand the laws of those countries as much as we want them to understand our laws. Uh, and so we have to be very careful with how we, we uh, exercise our diplomacy and how we communicate our concerns, because the slightest thing, as we've seen, can trigger uh, the kind of responses that put us in this position in the first place. Indeed. Uh, Jerry, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Devin.
That's Jerry McCartney from the London Chamber of Commerce. We need to pause when we return more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. In the second half of the program, we'll be talking about Brexit, we'll be talking about tuition fees, and we'll talk about the Junos. That and more in the second hour of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. We are into the second hour of the program. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. I think one of the worst jobs in the world right now has got to be British Prime Minister. Theresa May was consulting opposition parties and other lawmakers earlier today in a battle to put Brexit back on track after surviving a no-confidence vote yesterday, though there's not much sign of a breakthrough from talks, which were called a stunt by opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn. European Union countries are stepping up preparations for a disorderly British exit on March 29th after the UK Parliament rejected May's Brexit withdrawal deal with the bloc. Lawmakers threw out the deal on Tuesday in a crushing defeat for May. She suffered the worst parliamentary defeat in modern British history. The drubbing was followed by a no-confidence vote in the government, but May's minority Conservative government survived it on Wednesday night with backing from their northern Irish ally, the Democratic Unionist Party. May said she would hold talks in a constructive spirit with leaders of opposition parties and other lawmakers in a bid to find a way forward for Britain's EU exit. The government confirmed that May will meet a Monday deadline to publish a Plan B and that lawmakers will have a full day to debate it on January 29th. To talk about this, we're joined by Brian Lewis. He's a professor of history at McGill University and a Brexit expert. Thanks for your time today. Uh, just looking at it from this week alone, although you could probably go back further, it seems as though uh, Theresa May might have the worst job in the UK right now. It's just an incredibly difficult position she's in. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, she has made it much more difficult for herself, uh, I would say, by making some uh, really bad decisions over the course of the last three years. How uh, you, you mentioned the the decisions she's made over the past couple of years is was there a way do you think for the Brexit talks to have gone better or was it always going to end up in the situation we're in right now? I think uh, if right after the referendum when she came into power, she had made an attempt to form some kind of coalition reaching across parties at that point. Uh, around some kind of soft Brexit, then it's possible that she might have been able to uh, achieve something workable that would have passed through Parliament. But as it was, she was so afraid that that she would split her own party uh, that uh, she put down all kinds of red lines that appeased uh, the right wing uh, in her party, the Brexiters. And I think that was her, her first crucial mistake. Her second crucial mistake uh, was to call a general election a year afterwards uh, that lost her majority. Uh, Her campaign was a complete disaster. Uh, And that meant uh, that she had no room at all with which to work. And uh, Parliament is gridlocked in the way that we see it now. She may have been concerned about splitting her party, and it seems as though that has 
happened anyway, even though that's something she was trying to avoid. Yeah, very much so. And, and that was true for her predecessor, David Cameron, as well. Uh, he decided to have the referendum um, because he was uh, afraid of splits within the Conservative Party. Um, and uh, it, it was said at the time that uh, he kind of sacrificed the country to save the party. And now it seems that both he and uh, Theresa May uh, have sacrificed both the country and the party. There, there doesn't seem to be really any way back uh, for the Conservative Party in the near future uh, on this question. Uh, I think it's going to be split uh, right down the middle for at least the next decade or so. Is there any way to forecast what happens next with Brexit? They've got, uh, well, we need need to have a plan B by uh, the 29th, but even March 29th isn't that far away in terms of the deadline for Brexit. That's right. Um, It's really quite fascinating that none uh, of the uh, possible solutions uh, are uh, at all feasible at the moment. So you have this uh, situation where one of these impossibilities will have to prevail, um, and it's not at all clear what it's going to be. Um, The options are a a no-deal Brexit, um, but um, the vast majority of the House of Commons uh, is against that. Uh, and if the Prime Minister forced that through uh, and uh, the disaster, economic disaster that's been predicted uh, um, would take place uh, in the aftermath, then her party, I think, would be destroyed. So she's going to try and resist that uh, as much as possible. The uh, second uh, possibility uh, is to have uh, a, a softer Brexit, uh, which would involve negotiations uh, with the other parties, um, but uh, her hardliners uh, would resist that. That would probably split her own party. Um, and any kind of softer Brexit negotiated, like the Norway Plus option, uh, for example, uh, would mean that uh, the, the country would have to uh, agree to um, a customs union um, to continuing payments to the European Union, to uh, allowing uh, free uh, migration uh, of peoples, and to accept the jurisdiction uh, of the European Court of Justice, uh, all of which um, would mean that Britain would become a, a rule taker rather than a, a rule maker in the European Union. And I can't see how that could be sustainable in the long run. And then the third option... Um, would be a second referendum. Um, There is no majority in the House of Commons for that at the moment. Um, The Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, is against it. But if all other options fail, um, the second referendum, the people's vote, might be the the only one that is left standing. Uh, And the Labour leadership might uh, shift behind it. um, And that might eventually emerge as the solution. If you were to wager on one of the three, uh, would you say, what would you say one of those three happens? At the moment, I'm cautiously optimistic uh, that there will be a second referendum, but a lot has to happen um, before that emerges. Can they, if they decide to theoretically have a second referendum, is it possible to extend the deadline for Brexit past uh, the March 29 uh, date that's currently set? 
Yes, I think so. I, I think um, in uh, just about uh, any scenario, um, that is going to have to be extended. Um, and uh, the, uh, the French and the Germans uh, have indicated that they would be willing to extend it. Uh, Donald Tusk, the uh, president of the European Council, has said that um, there can be an extension probably up until the summer uh, with little problem. So I think um, with that extra time, then one of the other possibilities uh, might emerge. A no-deal Brexit would lead to uh, tremendous problems. Uh, that's People have detailed that in terms like food shortages and, and whatnot. That would be the worst case scenario. In this whole situation, though, it almost feels like the worst case scenario has consistently played out. Yes, it's true. Um, and it is possible that uh, the, the uh, no deal, uh, just because of the way that the, the, the clock is played down, um, might, uh, might emerge uh, in the end. But it, it seems that there is only uh, about 100 members of parliament out of 650 who actively want a no deal. Um, and one of the amendments that is going to be put uh, to parliament uh, next week or, or on uh, January the 29th um, will call for um, an explicit vote uh, against a no deal. So there are lots of mechanisms uh, in place uh, to prevent a no deal happening. And also the, the self-interest of, of the party leaders, because uh, if they get um, tarnished uh, with, uh, with the blame uh, for bringing about uh, a no deal, then I really think they will not only wreck their own careers, but they will wreck their own parties. Um, so I don't think it's going to happen, um, but it might. Uh, nothing is really predictable. Um, we, we have a, a, a perfect storm of uh, catastrophic proportions in Britain right now, and uh, no one knows uh, where it's going to end up. Indeed. Uh, the, the deadline for a, a Plan B is next week on Monday. Do you think at this point... May knows what that plan B is, or I know she's meeting with uh, various lawmakers uh, today. Uh, that hasn't necessarily gone too well, but um, what the, I don't know what that plan B might be. Some other version of a soft Brexit, possibly, but as you articulated earlier, uh, that's a rocky road to go down. It's a very rocky road, and she doesn't seem to be willing to concede much territory, uh, in spite of the, the, the massive... Uh, defeat uh, of the day before yesterday. Uh, she is still saying that uh, she is against uh, any form of customs union. She's still saying she is against a second referendum. She has ruled out, ruling out a no deal. So all of the things that might make um, her approach to other parties uh, to be more appealing, she has ruled out. So um, I don't think she has the, the diplomatic skills uh, or the flexibility uh, really to achieve much of anything. Um, she suggested that uh, she's going to talk up uh, the need for uh, greater workers' rights and environmental protections and things like that uh, to appeal to uh, members of the Labour Party in particular. Um, but um, that alone is certainly not going to be adequate to overturn the, the crushing majority uh, against her deal, um, as we saw on Tuesday. 
It's complicated by the fact, too, she's essentially prime minister by default. She survived a confidence vote from her own party, but not uh, too strongly. She survived the confidence vote in the, or her government survived the confidence vote uh, on Wednesday night, but that was per, that was by a slim margin as well. It doesn't seem as though she's long for the job, regardless of what the outcome here is with Brexit. The only reason that she is still in the job uh, is because of fear of a, a Labour government uh, under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and uh, that's why all of those Tories uh, who uh, rebelled against her uh, on Tuesday came back to her side uh, yesterday. Uh, they fear of uh, the were a general election, um, then uh, there is a good possibility that uh, Labour would win it, and then we would have the most left-wing um, governments in, in probably in British history. Um, they want to avoid that uh, at all costs. Um, and they don't want to topple her. Uh, well, some of them do, obviously, but the majority don't want to topple her because they realize there would be a huge battle between um, Brexiters uh, and Remainers uh, for the party leadership, which would be terribly divisive. Um, and um, again, it would give it an opportunity to the Labour Party. Um, so the, they seem to be really stuck with her for the time being. Um, I mean, the, there is a possibility that at some point um, she will just say, OK, I've done everything I can and it's failed uh, miserably uh, and, and therefore I'm going to chuck it all in and, and resign and all call it a, a general election. Uh, and uh, persuade her party to do that. But uh, uh, she's very stubborn, and uh, neither of those looks uh, likely at the moment. Just finally, uh, do you think this entire ordeal has made other countries wary of following Britain's lead in exiting the EU? Very much so. Um, I think it has proved a very uh, helpful lesson to European um, government leaders um, and uh, also for some of the opposition parties that might have been uh, contemplating uh, leaving the European Union, uh, it's not at all easy to do that. Um, uh, and, and so I, I think um, many European leaders are really quite grateful for uh, the, uh, the, the mess that Britain has made. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I don't think we're going to see uh, any leading European party putting forward um, um, quitting the European Union anytime soon. I will uh, be following this with interest. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. That's Brian Lewis, professor of history at McGill University and a Brexit expert. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. Uh, Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. One more piece on the UK before we move on. One of the parts of this whole mess I've enjoyed the most is John Burkow. He's the British Speaker of the House of Commons. If you haven't heard this guy, he's fantastic. You should. And by the end of this segment, you will have. But if you go on social media or YouTube, you'll find many videos of him just cutting people up in a typically British way. Now, this is still the House of Commons, so it's still in a political manner, but it's great. So, for example, he does things like this. 
the need... Order, order, order. I say to the Honourable Gentleman from Rayleigh, who made a very fine speech yesterday, that he spoke on his feet and with considerable passion and integrity, but he should not now rant from a sedentary position. He used to misbehave 30 years ago when he stood against me in Conservative student politics. We've both grown up since then. We've both grown up since then. And he does things like this. Indeed. Order, order, order. I, I don't know what's happened to the honourable gentleman from North Dorset. Decades ago, when he was at Oxford University as a student, my wife always said to me subsequently, he was a very well-behaved young man. He seems to have regressed since then. It's very unsatisfactory. He's got to try to improve his condition. And we can't have people constantly ranting from a sedentary position. And the Leader of the Opposition will be heard. Let's be clear about that. And so will every other speaker. I think he's great. If I were to use one word to describe him, it would be verbose. He has attracted attention from afar. A newspaper from the Netherlands once said that no one can call order more beautifully than him. Newspaper from Belgium which called Brexit, uh, the whole debate about Brexit, a black hole, described him as, quote, impossible to live with, often unbearable, but irreplaceable. And a German uh, TV show even described him as Monty Python-esque. I think he's great. In fact, here's a longer cut of him in the House of Commons. Order! There's simply too much noise in the chamber on both sides. You're yelling across the chamber! Be quiet! Quiet! Calm yourself! Take up yoga! Mr. Edmund. You really... Order! You really are a very overexcitable individual. You need to write out a thousand times. I will behave myself at Prime Minister's questions. Mr. Ellis. You are a distinguished practicing barrister. I I do think. Order! Order! Mr. Ruane, you are an incorrigible delinquent. Order. The quicker people remember their manners, the better. It simply is the politics of the con man to pretend that you can freeze prices when you're not in control of global energy prices. Let it go the first time. The word con man is frankly unparliamentary. You cannot have. The question has been asked, and the answer must be heard. And it turns out, Mr. Speaker... As long as it takes... Calm yourself, man! The lion must get back in its den! We know, Mr. Speaker, he's got a new advisor from America. Yes, he has, Mr. Axelrod. And this is what he's being advised to say. Let me share it with the House, because I think this is excellent advice. He says this, there's a better future ahead of us, but we must not go backward to the policies that put us in this mess in the first place. I don't know. I don't know what they're paying him, Mr. Speaker. Order, order, order. I haven't finished. to that question, the Prime Minister has finished, and he can take it from me that he's finished. It is not known what uh, Burkow, who even his admirers admit could not be described as publicity shy, thinks of all the attention he gets. But in response to the criticism of his handling of some MPs, Burkow, who's been Speaker since 2009, has been unapologetic. 
We don't have uh, speakers who operate like that in Canada. That's for sure. Provincially or federally. And that's probably a good thing. One of the reasons I like him is his accent and his command of the English language. Somehow it just sounds more refined with an English tongue. Overall, I would like to see MPs act better in the House of Commons, whether it's Canada or UK or otherwise. It's odd to see the way they act, the way the mob mentality almost takes over. None of these people act this way in any of their sense. I personally think question period is overrated. I'm all for keeping the government to account, but does that actually happen in a question period? Do you watch question period? I don't blame you if you don't. The opposition will ask a question, and the government of the day will have their stock response ready. And then they go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And sometimes the government even asks themselves a question, which is just a joke. Remember when everyone was talking about how Stephen Harper and Thomas Mulcair performed much better during question period than Justin Trudeau? People especially loved how well Mulcair did in the House. How did that work out for him? We are venturing into another area here, so we'll leave it at that. But really, how useful is question period? The only people who watch it are people in the media and people in politics. If you are a regular Joe who watches Question Period on a regular basis, my friend, you need something better to do. I like John Burkow as speaker, and even I don't watch him regularly, just the clips. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Earlier today, the PC government announced it was eliminating free tuition for students from low-income families while also cutting tuition fees. The Tories say the Ontario Student Assistance Plan grants had become unsustainable and it was time to refocus it to provide help to students in the most financial need. The previous Liberal government had increased the number of grants and made it possible for low-income students to attend college or university free of cost, but the Auditor General found last month that costs for that program jumped by 25% and warned it could grow to $2 billion annually by 2020-2021. Training Colleges and Universities Minister Marilee Fullerton announced today that family income thresholds for the grant would be lowered and instead they would be providing more loans. She says most of the grants will go to students whose families have an income less than $50,000 but do not say what the cutoff would be for a grant. The current tuition-free framework, which has capped increases for most programs at 3%, expires at the end of this academic year. Under a new framework, tuition would decrease by 10% for the 2019-2020 year and then would be frozen for the following year. Core operating grants from the government to post-secondary institutions are contingent on their compliance with the tuition cut. Minister Fullerton made the announcement earlier today. Here is a portion of that Q&A with the media that followed. Um, How do you expect colleges and universities to make up the difference in revenue with the tuition decrease? I think the first thing to recognize is that the 10% uh, reduction in tuition uh, is not an equivalent reduction to operating costs for universities or colleges. It equates to anywhere from about 2 to 4%. Um, Universities are autonomous institutions. Colleges are relatively independent. uh, And they will, you know, make choices in terms of what they need to do. We're, we're not prescriptive in that. But will you be making up that 2 to 4% or are you expecting them to absorb that hit? 
Well, there's different ways they can uh, they can adapt, and and I have full confidence in our institutions, colleges, and universities. Uh, you know, they will be able to determine what they need to do to change, to adapt, and innovate. And you know, we're calling on our institutions uh, in a challenge. Let's innovate. Let's create a 10% reduction for students across the board, across Ontario, in an unprecedented historic uh, reform. 10% reduction for all students, all programs, all publicly funded programs through colleges and universities. And so I, I have strong belief that our institutions uh, will, will adapt. Minister, will this make it more difficult for people to actually access OSAP funds? Well, what we're finding is that under the previous Liberal government, we saw the, the government subsidizing high-income earners, uh, people with $175,000 worth of income. Uh, and, and we're looking at how, how we do that better. How do we make sure that our students and families in need get the support they need? And that's what we're focused on with this, with this reform, is students and families that need that support that are depending on it. So fewer people will be eligible for OSAP then? All Ontario students are eligible to apply for OSAP. There's 440,000 students that have already been processed. Uh, and, and this is to make sure that we have an affordable, accessible student aid system that is sustainable into the future. The combination of the 10% reduction and making sure that OSAP is sustainable to serve future generations, uh, students, uh, families who need it the most, it, it's critical that we do that. The Liberals had put our, our OSAP, our financial aid program, on an unsustainable path. The Auditor General's report in December indicated that. It indicated an unsustainable ballooning system that was not going to be able to serve our students into the future. And, and we believe in sustainability and making sure our students and families with the most need receive the support that they need. Minister Travis from uh, Global News. Is the idea of free tuition in this province now dead? Well, tuition was never free. It was never free, but I can tell you that across the province, we heard from students and, and continue to hear from them, even as a few days ago, saying that tuition was too high and something needed to be done. So the, the tuition reduction of 10% is $450 million worth of tuition relief for our students, something that they have been calling for. This is a, a reform to make sure that uh, students and families in the most need are able to receive it. And in fact, the share of, uh, of the distribution will increase from 79% to 82%. For families, it might actually be 76% to 82. Uh, so there'll be more grants going to families earning less than 50,000 or 50,000 or less. More grants going to to those families and students. The positioning of this announcement is that it's a it's a good day for students in Ontario. However, you know universities are concerned about this 10% reduction and how they'll be able to provide some of the same programs and services. And also, it seems on the surface, at least, there are significant cuts to who can qualify for OSAP. So how is it a good day for students in Ontario? Well, all Ontario students are eligible for uh, applying for OSAP. And what we want to make sure we do is that the students who need the, uh, the support the most receive that. Um, we're looking at an unsustainable program. The Auditor General's report indicated the costs had ballooned and that this was not, un uh, this was not sustainable. It was unsustainable for the future. 
and we need to make sure that those families and students who need it the most get the support that they require. Uh, we're looking at making sure that families that are earning less than $50,000 actually get a greater share of grant funding. Uh, if you look at the tuition reduction of 10% across the board, uh, you will see a $340 reduction in tuition for students in a, in a college program, $660 reduction for an average university program in arts and sciences. Uh, I mean, there's just so many examples. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned the Carleton University um, engineering program. They would receive a reduction of 1,120, and I can keep going. Western University, the commerce and business undergraduate program will be reduced by $2,270. And uh, University of uh, Toronto, I have that information here too. Um, York, uh, one program will see a reduction of 3,890. Brock University, Master of Education graduate program will be reduced by $1,200 for 2019 and 20. Um, Cambrian College, paramedic uh, diploma program will be reduced by $670 for 2019-20. Durham College, pre-service firefighter education and training diploma we, will be reduced by $880. I could go on. And if we look at the ancillary fees, you know, we believe in treating students as adults. They should be responsible and have the responsibility of, you know, how their education finances are, are achieved. And I believe, uh, I have three, three children, they're all adults, they were all students. Um, students are adults and we will be treating them as adults. The institutions, uh, through the ancillary fees, uh, they will adapt. But it's up to the students to tell the institutions what they want. So we're giving them responsibility to students and empowering students in their own education, in the finances of their education. And uh, we want to work with our institutions, our institutions, our partners, but we also want to challenge them to innovate and give the responsibility and the empowerment uh, and, and our student choice initiative is a very big part of the ancillary uh, fee and, and the cost reductions there for students. It's up to them. That's Training Colleges and Universities Minister Marilee Fullerton speaking earlier today, taking questions from the media after announcing the provincial government was cutting eligibility for student grants, saying the program has become unsustainable. The move comes as the Tories also drop college and university tuition fees. The previous Liberal government increased the number of grants and made it possible for low-income students to attend college or university for free. The Tories say the Ontario Student Assistance Plan will now focus on students in the most financial need. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. The Junels will be in London in less than two months. We are 58 days away from the Juno Awards show itself and just over 50 days away from the start of Juno Week. A few weeks ago, the Juno host committee was given the go-ahead to build an outdoor stage on the Budweiser Gardens parking lot. Now, they are asking for permission to extend their curfew. Currently, we have uh, policies in the city that regulate special events hosted in the city that dictate that events need to be ended by 11 o'clock at night. However, the host committee wants to extend that to 1 o'clock in the morning. I mentioned the outdoor stage at Budweiser Gardens because this request would only apply to events that take place on that stage. 
I should also note the committee is not asking for an exemption from the noise bylaw. Talk about this, we're joined by Chris Campbell, the chairperson of the Juno Host Committee. Thanks for coming on. Oh, great to be here. Uh, the uh, the fact that we're talking about this today is another example that the uh, Junos are right around the corner, not too long now. Uh, the extension specifically, though, uh, uh, why are you asking for this extension? You know, when you're putting on a national event like this, and we and we made a very similar request during uh, Country Music Week, it's not that there's there's any intention to program it until 1 a.m. or anything like that. It's more that... Um, you know, things happen, whether it's uh, you may have a delay here or there, or it's just it's the ability that if you need it, um, it's there and uh, you can use it for, for any number of reasons. And so um, and uh, also we want to put on that programming and, and there's a lot of programming that, you know, want that we need to put on that week. And uh, it's just a tool and a resource uh, to make things easier. It's a barrier that we want to get rid of uh, for an event of this magnitude. And quite frankly, I mean, we didn't use it at all to its maximum potential during Country Music Week. I was the chair of that event. We never went to 1 o'clock. And we also didn't get, I mean, we may have had a a couple phone calls, but you're talking, it's such a minimal, minimal number. And at that time, the weather was gorgeous and sunny and people were wearing shorts. Windows were open and it was out in the open. This time, you know, we're in the middle of March. I hope it's great weather, but, you know, I'm not counting on anyone wearing shorts. And uh, we're under a tent. I would think that most windows are closed. It's, you know, it's to uh, provide the atmosphere for the people there. And um, yeah, I, I would not anticipate any problem um, uh, from, from this being, you know, an issue. This is, this is uh, an exemption that's definitely warranted. Well, it's better to have it and not use it to its fullest rather than not have it and, you know, go over maybe. Or That's right. Like that. Yeah. And we obviously want to comply. And we're not we're not making any suggestions of being louder or anything. It's more just have, being able to go longer if and when we need to. And because we haven't finalized all the details of, you know, uh, what's going on in there and who's playing and how many acts and that type of thing, we want to be able to put on a great show. And uh, this just gives us the ability to do that. Country Music Week's a good example in terms of maybe what we're going to get. Like obviously, it's going to be it's like it's like the Junos. It's but such times a, ten, oh, maybe times a hundred, maybe times a thousand, times a thousand. Yeah. But that's kind of like the same idea in terms of like what, what people are going to see see in terms of yeah. this specifically downtown. This is only one location, dude. right? It's just for Budweiser Garden, right? And so uh, you know, a fan zone tent out in front of the venue. Um, for those days, you, you also will have Juno Fest on Friday and Saturday, and that will encompass about eight. 18 different venues across London, primarily Juno-nominated artists playing in them, but also local and regional, which is fantastic, fantastic opportunity to showcase our local and regional talent. And then um, also a a multitude of uh, other announcements, peripheral things that will be going on. I mean, we already know on Friday night you've got the Juno Cup taking place at uh, at the Western Fair, which is amazing. That's an amazing event. And there's other events all over the place too so it's you will there will be no shortage of things to do in london let me tell you the uh the 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 extension itself it looks like it's already got some uh support from businesses in the area too they kind of understand uh what's yeah. at stake here I, yeah i would businesses have been fantastic i mean i can't emphasize that enough um uh, the outreach. I mean, we've had businesses, you know, emailing and calling and wanting to get involved and support. And uh, oh, it's been just tremendous all over. It's it's a great story. 
I think, and you mentioned this earlier, I think it's interesting too that, you know, this is not like about noise, it's more just about the time, because this is not, you're not asking for like a noise exemption or anything like no, that. No, no, there's no, we're not asking for any uh, any noise exemptions or anything, and um, it's just, uh, it's the ability, to, we don't have that confirmed, you know, of how many artists, what they are, you know, and then there's also those un- unforeseen things. Maybe there's something that's delayed for a few minutes and we wouldn't want to shorten any of the, the show. So it gives us the ability to uh, to maximize that experience for the fan in there. We are less than uh, two months away from uh, this yep. all starting. Uh, how busy is your life right now? It's very busy, uh, but, you know, I'm one of many. And uh, I'll tell you that the, the, I have a, a you know, court. I've got an amazing committee and I have there's core people on the committee that are working around the clock. Uh, we all are. And um, and then Pete, the Karis team in Toronto, we're working closely with. It's great. I mean, things are progressing very well. Uh, communication is excellent. And um, the city has been fantastic. Our, our venue partners have been amazingly fantastic. And I can't wait. I mean, I'm literally bursting at the seams to, to tell you more. But, um, you know, in due course, you're going to find out a lot of exciting announcements. You've said in the past, you know, pretty much there's going to be announcements every week, and we've seen that. We had the Corey Hart news just the other day, and we had, uh, you know, uh, news that were coming out the week before that, week yeah. before that. So it's been a pretty consistent flow of uh, yeah. a little idea of what's going to be involved. Well, I'll this. tell you one thing. Mark your calendars for January 29th because the nominations come out that day. Um, I would suspect, I don't know for certain, but I would suspect you may find out who's hosting. You may hear some artists, that type of thing. We don't, you know, I can't say that with absolute certainty. I don't know. But I can tell you the nominations are coming out, and that's going to be just an amazing day because that'll that'll really, things will start happening rapid fire at that point. And if anyone just wants any information in terms of what's, going to be happening for uh, yeah. for everything? What's the best place to go? Because oh, we keep talking about all these different events, yeah. but sometimes people are driving, they may not always the, get the it. The Juno's but... main uh, website is, is great, and then uh, the uh, the London host uh, website, too, uh, is fantastic. Uh, Juno'sLondon2019.ca Chris, I appreciate you coming in today. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's Chris Campbell, the chairperson of the Juno Host Committee. We need to pause. When we return, more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. My thanks to Dr. Daniel Scott, to Anthony Dale, to Gia Wong, to Jerry McCartney, Brian Lewis, and Chris Campbell for coming on the show. Thanks to Jacqueline Carbone for her work on the program. Today's audio gem is a clip from a newscast in the United States where an anchor threw to a meteorologist outside in the snow and got an icy response. Have a great day. We'll be back with you tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Let's get out to NBC 10's Tony Gugliotta. He's live from Attleboro and pretty bundled up, Tony. Gugliata, frozen uh, quiet there out there in the uh, cold. That's how cold it is.